Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. There is a question, if you have a lot of money at this point in the credit cycle and the economic cycle, what do you do with it to get returns? What kind of returns are you expecting? Joining us now, Christopher Wolf, Chief Investment Officer at First Republic Private Wealth Management, which oversees about $140 billion in assets under administration. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. So uh, Christopher, I want to start with when you have your wealth management, uh, when you have your clients, mm-hmm. wealthy individuals, they have money. Sure. Where do you start in terms of the returns that they should shoot for in terms of their expectations? So that's a great uh, question. I think expectation management often becomes the heart of the initial discussion that you have with a client. Um, And where we start with them isn't all about the numbers because you often get on, oh geez, you're only gonna get 2% in bonds or maybe 6% in stocks. And that sounds kind of scary for a couple of reasons, which I'll get into, but it actually starts with the goals. What's important to you and how do you wanna get there? And uh, that's a different conversation than what can I get for return? Because the second question I just raised, which a client, when they ask it, often means they start to chase things. I want to get that return. And that becomes more important than, well, what's the purpose of your money? So I'm going to leave the purpose out because that's individualized for everybody. It then becomes the job of a wealth manager or someone else, in the, a professional in the business to think about how am I going to manage the risks to get from A to B? So if A is I have, let's say, $2 million and I need to have $3 million in you know, seven years to make my goal, whatever it is, how am I going to get there with the least amount of risk possible? Now, the big judgment is what's the return number? And kind of simply put, our view is that returns are going to be a lot lower than they have been in the past. Uh, past numbers, I think, as everyone knows from famous studies like Ibbotson and the like, or equities are more north of 9, 10, 11%, depending on what time period you pick, we think it's closer to 6. Um, and that's important because two big things have changed in our view. One is population growth has actually come down quite a bit and is set to decline as you, unless immigration changes a lot in the United States. And two is productivity growth looks like it's stagnant a bit. So kind of the drivers of economic growth over a long period look like they're a lot lower, number one. Number two is we're maxed out in some ways in our view around the margin story. So if you're thinking about the premium you get from equities, it's still good relative to bonds in a low inflation world, but wow, it's not a high nominal number like nine. So it's more like six, but here's the good news. If inflation's like two, six is still better than two. Right. So if, if the expectation is coming down for, yeah. say, stocks and bonds, are you finding that your clients are more willing to go out on the risk profile, whether it's alternative investments or emerging markets? Uh, mm-hmm. Are they willing to take on more risk to ch- maybe try to chase that return? Yeah, we have a slightly different view around that. I think a a legacy of a lot of the thinking around where demographics is destiny and I have to invest where populations are growing led most people to just run right into emerging markets and I need an allocation or some other kind of pachinko machine fill it out, you know, uh, approach. Our view is that there are some structural changes going on in markets that represent meaningful opportunities for clients. Here's two big ones and then it leads to an answer to your question. The first is there's a lot less public stocks these days. There's about 3,000 you can really invest in and maybe two or 300 that clients really recognize. A lot of M&A and other things have really brought down the number of opportunities in the U.S. It's actually gone up outside the U.S. But the second big thing that's changed is you've seen with the cost of money being so low, a collapse, a really emerging evaluations between public and private markets. So fewer public companies dominated by machine trading, 
a lot of private companies well-funded now means that those valuation multiples are likely to stay close together. And until the, meaning a private company might trade at a similar valuation multiple, PE or enterprise value to EBITDA. And we see that. And a lot of private folks are saying, well, gosh, this is just super expensive. And we get it. Private companies are now more highly rated than they have been in the past. But that makes sense. The cost of money, the cost of financing these companies is now so low. And if there are fewer public market opportunities, then it looks to us like the private set is actually kind of very interesting. Here's the big trade, I think, over the next couple of years. There's north of $8 trillion in our view of refinancings and the credit market that's likely to happen. And you can't capture that just by buying long fixed income, as an example. you got to do something different. You have to be thinking about long or short or distressed debt or some kind of restructuring approach, in our view, to capture some of those refinancings and restructurings that we think are coming. So that's a private answer. That's where we go. I guess when I, when we look at the risk part of mm-hmm. the pendulum, though, in response to what you're saying in, about private markets, a lot of investors are saying this. In fact, you're seeing record amounts of money going into private mm-hmm. markets, debt and equity. Yeah. And I'm wondering at what point uh, this is all chasing a return and ends up having a, a sad ending in terms of these companies having unsustainable businesses that are being kept afloat by a rush of cash seeking the promise of higher yields uh, and somewhere just to sit. Totally agree that what happens when the cost of money is zero is you're going to fund things that should have never been funded in the first first place, or even worse, you're going to keep funding things that should stop being funded would be kind of one way to think about it. I guess our perspective is that, you know, the big driver here is interest rates. The cost of money is zero. Cost of capital is close to zero. It's very low space. And if you don't have a lot of public market opportunities, the liquefaction of the private markets is well underway in the United States. It's going to be very hard to reverse that. Our judgment, you're going to need... Sorry, we need like a little ding, ding, ding. The liquefaction of private markets. I love it. Go on. Carry on. Well, that's what I mean. Liquefaction, I guess. No, I like it. I like that. This is great. The reality here is two big things are happening in private markets in our view. One is the growth in things like secondaries. So secondaries are when a firm comes in and buys a limited partnership interest from you. So when you buy a private investment, you're often, if you're qualified and meet all the regulations, you have to buy a limited partnership or a limited liability company. You can't really trade it, but trading systems are now being built up as a lot of firms are looking to do with all their extra capital. Well, maybe I can buy an interest from somebody. You can now get a little bit more liquidity in private markets than you had in the past. You still pay a price for it, but 15 years ago, it was almost zero. Now, post-2008, there's a lot of excess money looking to buy some of these interesting things. I think the second big thing that's happened is that we started to see a greater concentration of uh, private capital in some of the bigger hands. It's much harder, I think, for some of the smaller shops to, to start up. So bigger pools of capital often means a lot of liquidity goes with that. So our view is that this trend is going to continue for a while. And the real barometer here is just simple. Interest rates staying low on the floor. Chairman Powell said that's likely mm-hmm. to be the case. This trend continues for as long as rates stay very low, the cost of capital stays very low. In our view, as long as the real cost of capital is close to zero, it's going to keep funding these private markets. So Chris, just about 20 seconds real quick. Yeah. You have a recession in your outlook? Uh, we do. We think it's uh, you know decent probability, 30, 40% for next year. Um, but it's not 50. It's not overwhelming. So we're in a place where we think the low and slow story is still the central one. It's just going to feel really bumpy. It might feel like a recession in certain parts of the stock market, for example. But bond market's a little overreaction. They're kind of telling you the story that it's really slowing down at this point. Things like optimism are a little bit lagging indicators. Bottom line is we think you can still position well for a low and slow environment. Low and slow environment. Chris Wolf, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Chris is a chief investment officer for First Republic Private Wealth Management. Uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers. Studio. 
So that's the liquefaction of private markets. That's <laughs> low all I can think of. It's just great. No, but honestly, this, it, it's it's true. There is this you know flood of cash that's gone into private markets, yep. and people are trying to create more of a public overlay for these markets to allow people to get in and out with a similar sort of liquidity as uh, public markets offer. Right. So at what point? What's the difference between public and private? I don't know. And we will take a look Big at questions. WeWorks. Take a look at WeWorks. Maybe oh, the, yeah. <laughs> maybe there is a, a golf there. TMT, tech, media, telecom. There is a lot going on in the TMT space every day, which is why we're happy to have John Butler here. John covers telecommunication services and equipment for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And John, a lot of stuff going on in your world. Let's start with AT&T. Boy, they have an activist investor in there, uh, Elliott Management, pushing for change. What is Elliott Management really looking for? I think, in a word, they're looking for divestitures. They're looking for AT&T to get more focused. And if you read their letter, they talk a lot about how AT&T has, since they first announced the acquisition of Time Warner, has changed strategy multiple times as the market itself has changed, in fairness to AT&T. But I think Elliot's point is they don't really have a handle on what the strategy is with Time Warner yet. And, you know, in, again, I'll defend AT&T on this one. The linear media market is changing rapidly, and so it's hard for them to really skate to where the puck's going to be, so to speak, if they don't know where it is now. Okay, but even aside from AT&T and Time Warner and whether that tie-up was a good idea or how exactly they're controlling that, there are these other businesses too, like a home security business, which who knew? Uh, <laughs> uh, then there's DirecTV, of course, the, a Mexican wireless operation, who knew? Uh, and oh, part of its wireline footprint. So basically, focus really is the issue here, right, that Ellie is trying to bring here. How, do they, how are they going to identify which assets yeah, I mean, AT&T to sell. So just to answer your question, AT&T has sort of taken a conglomerate approach to the answer of what do you do as wireless slows? And it has been slowing. It's going to continue to slow. It's a commodity market. Do you do what Verizon has done, which is you lay your bets on the next generation of wireless and do that better and try and get some profit out of that? Or do you tap an adjacent market or markets for growth, which is what AT&T has chosen to do? Elliot is arguing there's some stuff that AT&T has purchased over the years that should go, like the satellite business, DirecTV. And as you mentioned, the Mexican wireless operations, which frankly, I agree with. I never quite understood what the rationale was there other than to create a cross-border network with an adjacent country. But frankly, I'm not, again, sure if they know what they're doing in Mexico. It's a very tough market, and that is a commodity market dominated by the low-end prepaid business. So I think Elliot is looking at it saying, you know, let's think about lopping that off and lopping off the satellite business in order to become more focused and therefore more profitable. So when you look at 
the media business. They've spent over $100 billion buying DirecTV, now buying Time Warner. One of the concerns I would have if I were a shareholder is, boy, that's really a people-intensive business. I need some creative people in there really driving the business forward. And what we've observed is a defection of a lot of the senior people from Turner, from HBO, from the studio. How concerning is that to shareholders that you know really need the content people to drive the business? That is a big concern. And, um, you know, I've watched that defection process you were talking about, you know, one after another um, leaving Warner. And so the question becomes, can telecom people competently run a media business? You know, you and I were talking before the segment about how different those cultures are. I worked at HBO and I've, I've really seen the difference in cultures <laughs> between companies you know telecoms are very utility like it's a high fixed cost business uh it's much easier to budget Man, i think the, and the, media is high variable the cost, microphone goes but, on and he just tones it down completely yeah. we were we were talking about hanging from the sh- hanging from the chandeliers at hbo <laughs> versus you can hear a pin drop in the cubicles uh at at&t uh but it is interesting right now at&t shares up 2.3 percent so clearly there are plenty of people who agree uh, with Elliot's uh, sort of push here. Now, one, one thing before we move on, in fairness to AT&T, they have not had a lot of time owning Time Warner to make changes, and there always are management defections in the wake of acquisitions. So I think things will settle out from here a bit. All right. Well, we now get to Apple releasing phones, and we have a minute left, so we're going to give it its due. Should we really care about the new launch of the latest edition of the iPhone in this manufactured holiday that Apple is so good at? Well, we should care in the sense that we're going to get a big camera upgrade, and smartphones really are now digital cameras with voice capability in many ways. Everything that people are doing on smartphones is video-oriented or uh, picture-oriented Snapchat, Instagram, FaceTime, etc. And so I think a camera upgrade's important, but it's not a big uh, year in terms of a wholesale change in the look and feel of the iPhone like we saw with the iPhone 10 or the iPhone 6. Sorry, I was just taking oh. a selfie. John Butler, thank you so much for being with us. John Butler, Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. He hails from Bloomberg Intelligence, of course, uh, doing wonderful work there. I love that we left a minute to talk about the new yes. iPhone, which basically is what we changed. should have. <laughs> right. Because honestly, it is really ultimately a camera, and cameras are incredibly important, but it's not a huge sea change in the way that we experience the iPhone. Gold is really hot these days, even though it's sort of come off its highs uh, that we saw in the past few weeks. We have Citigroup out today saying that they expect the price of uh, one ounce of gold to go to $2,000, a record high up from uh, a little bit more than $1,400 currently. Joining us now, not to talk about the price, but to talk about the process of trading gold. I'm so pleased to say it's Sakila Mirza. She's Senior Director of the London Bullion Market Association. She's joining us here in our 
Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Sakila, let's just start with the trading of gold and precious metals. How do most investors trade these days? I mean, how much are people still trading the physical commodity uh, versus some other sort of derivative? Well, thank you uh, for this opportunity to talk about the precious metals market. And actually, it's quite a timely question because since November 2018, the LBMA has been on a journey whereby we've been collecting data on a voluntary basis from the banks. And I actually can tell you, uh, the London market currently is trading 15 billion US dollars worth of gold. Um, which just gives you an idea in terms of the liquidity and how popular this um, asset class really is. Are you talking about that I have a chunk of gold and I give it to you and we've traded? Or are you talking about derivatives or you know futures contracts? So it's spot, it's options, it's uh, uh, <coughs> and obviously in terms of the exchange traded products. So it's it's a variety of products making up the the gold um, trading number. Okay, my knowledge of gold and trading is limited, but I do know some a term called the gold fix the pricing fix that gets done daily that's about the extent of it but i read here that it's the 100th anniversary of the price fixing so a couple things one congratulations <laughs> uh explain how gold is actually priced on because i don't understand is that priced daily by you guys or by banks or by how does that work Sure. Um, if I may, just first, uh, firstly, correct the term price fix. It's no longer the price fix. While historically, that's exactly what it was referred to. Since 2014, we now refer to it as a price auction. Okay. So it's an auction uh, platform. And basically, uh, what's changed over the years is enhanced transparency, independent governance, and actually giving you an electronic platform to allow banks to trade and put in real live trades. So it is an auction process. What you have are the buyers on one side, sellers on the other side. And the intention is for there to be an equilibrium. So you try a price every round. And when at a specific um, a point, an equilibrium has been reached between the buy side and the sell side, that is the price for that day. So as we talk about the incredible volume of trading in precious metals right now that you've been tracking, collecting from banks, there is a question of how much money banks have to hold mm -hmm. uh, when they do trade gold, for example. And right now, the standard is for them to hold, I believe, 80%, I believe, of the capital uh, to match uh, the total value of the the amount being executed. Is that correct? That's, I mean, it's 85%, 85%. but it's still a very high number uh, because one of the main things that the LBMA has been lobbying um, against that it's a, the wrong number for gold. Gold is a liquid asset, as we've just shown and demonstrated through the voluntary trade reporting regime. 15 billion US dollars is a lot. So it is a liquid asset. And because it's a liquid asset, there is no need to be holding that much capital to uh, back your balance sheet. Well, how does that compare in terms of the amount of capital that banks are being required to hold for gold versus, say, uh, instruments that are recognized as being more liquid? So, I mean, gold has been grouped with um, commodities generally. So what we're trying to explain that gold is, whilst yes, it behaves like a commodity, given that there's a real tangible, um, but it also behaves like a currency. So actually, and we all agree and we all know and understand that currency is a liquid uh, asset class. So what we're trying to explain to the authorities is gold is a unique asset class, specifically because it is a safe haven when there is a crisis, uh, when there is issues in the terms of the, the, the currency uh, prices. Gold tends to do well, as we are seeing in the recent times. So because of that, uh, we believe that the 85% is the wrong number, uh, 
it should be 0%. Um, and actually, if the, the rules go ahead, it could impact that trading and it could impact uh, the banks being in the market uh, within the gold space. So, Sakila, just in 30 seconds, what's the counter argument to that? Why are why is the number 85 percent? Well, I mean, we're still trying to understand that. Um, as far as we're concerned, uh, what we understand is that the authorities saw gold as a commodity, put it with the commodities because 85 percent has been allocated. When we try and understand and ask the, the rationale um, behind that 85 percent, we haven't quite been given a clear answer. Is it, my guess, is it just something around liquidity, do well, you think? No, it's, it's, it's the idea that there have traditionally been some serious losses uh, incurred on commodity trading desks yep. from time to time, and they're trying to make sure that, that it doesn't happen, right? I mean, that's sort of the idea. And exactly, and, and, and I think from our perspective, it's again to explain that gold isn't just your typical commodity. It's a, it's a hybrid between uh, a commodity and, for example, the, the FX markets. Sakila Mirza, thank you so much for joining us. Sakila is Executive Board Director and General Counsel for the London Bullion Market Association. Well, billionaires such as Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett could have collectively lost hundreds of billions of dollars in net worth over decades if presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax had been in effect. To get some of the details behind us, we welcome Rich Miller. Rich is an economics reporter for Bloomberg News. He's down in Bloomberg's 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. So, Rich, thanks for joining us. What's behind the math here? Well, behind the math is, is they take a look at what seemingly on its face is a small tax proposed by um, uh, Senator Warren. You know, 2% on wealth over $50 million and 3% on wealth over a billion dollars. But thanks to the cumulative, you know, the, 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 the impact of uh, compounding, uh, that amounts to a, a huge amount of money over time. So the top 15 richest Americans have wealth, according to Forbes magazine in 2018, approaching a trillion dollars. Now, if this tax had been in effect since 1982, when Forbes started, started uh, f- listing the rich, uh, richest Americans, that, that wealth would have been reduced to like more than half to $422 billion. Still a nice piece of change, but uh, it, it shows you how, how big an impact this tax potentially could have. So which angle did this study have? The angle of, look what this could have done, decimate the wealth of these individuals who are entrepreneurs in our nation, or is it, look at how much money it could have redistributed and sort of evened out uh, the gap between the wealthy and the, uh, and, and the lower the lower income. Very much the latter. I mean, these two economists, uh, uh, Manuel Saez and Gabriel Zuckman, they're both at uh, both French economists, but they're both now at the University of California at Berkeley, helped uh, Senator Warren put together her plan. And the, the argument is very much uh, why we need this sort of tax, I mean, this huge right. disparity in wealth, and, and how we can make it work. So they're trying to make it, I, I don't want to say that they're trying to make it a bigger number, but uh, there is sort of, you know, a goal to sort of have this headline number of that, that's, that, that sort of hits you over the head. I'm saying this only because I was reading through and struck by the idea that the assumption is that these individuals would take no action to reduce those tax bills. And we know that 
everyone gets an accountant who has a certain <laughs> income over a certain point, and they find every loophole and then some. So well, these guys would, would these guys would probably have ten, uh, ten or twenty accountants, right? <laughs> the entire accounting firm, <laughs> right? Exactly. No, I, I agree. It's 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 it's. It's it's they make some assumptions and uh, but I think I mean the point is that this is a, de- a debate that the Democrats are having and probably the country is having you know what do we do about this huge disparity uh, you know here we have top fifteen people in the country have close to a trillion dollars worth of assets and we have the top zero point one percent richest have like twelve trillion dollars you know what do what if anything, should we do about that? Right. So, and so this, I mean, this this underscores what you know, how you could try to do something about it, and what impact it would have uh, on on potentially on individuals. And I agree with you that you know, obviously, uh, these guys would take all, all sorts of legal actions to you know, including like you know, increasing consumption. You buy more boats. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> or, so, Rich, how much? Support, you know, bipartisan support. Is there in D.C. for these types of plans, you know, that really are intended to kind of redistribute uh, wealth across the U.S.? I think, well, on the Democratic side, I think you can see, you know, from um, uh, both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, you know, two of the top three uh, vote getters, according to the polls, in among on the presidential contending field, you know, they both very much are zeroed in on wealth and income inequality and what you know their respective administrations would do if they can't got the presidency to to address it. So, at least on the Democratic side, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a pretty big issue. You know, whether it would be addressed through. Maybe changes in the capital gains tax would be another way you could try to get at that, or you know, changes in the progressivity of the income tax or this wealth tax. You know, it, I don't think there's any sort of agreement on that, but I think there's at least among progressives on the Democratic side, who where obviously there's a lot of energy um, in the primaries and uh, pre-primaries. You know, yeah. there is a lot of focus on this kind of issue. Rich Miller, thank you so much for being with us. Rich Miller is an economics reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from our 99 studio in Washington, D.C. It's a really interesting issue and one that I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about as we head into the 2020 elections. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.